The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. do have meaning but only if connected to actions the problem is often our feelings direct our actions there needs to be in place the ability to reason one family has a a dear little three-year-old that three-year-old loves to run. And that little three-year-old has no sense of not running into the street. All this little one knows is the urge to run because it feels good. But what would happen if that little one were allowed to run into the street and a car is coming? we would lose that little one. They would be killed. But as they grow up, they will gain the ability to reason. And in their reasoning, they will say, I should not run into the street because if I do, I'm going to be run over. It's cause and effect. The great problem we're facing in America today is there is not a an understanding of cause and effect. That concepts and words have meanings and they attach themselves to actions. And if those actions lead us into darkness, if there is no reasoning ability, if our minds have become utterly futile, as it speaks of in Romans, the first chapter, if our minds are darkened, then we will not be able to reason based on reality. And then our actions will be out of a false sense of reasoning, and it will be out of emotion. Now, emotions are very important because they're what move the train down the track. They They motivate us because we have feelings about it. The problem is feelings just are. They aren't good or bad. Feelings just are whatever they are. And if those feelings control us, we will be swept away time after time in our sin. In the scriptures, there is a question asked, and it is this. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, I'm going to go into deep water with you today. I want to speak with you in depth about this question. I'd like to read for you a portion of Scripture, beginning in Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespasses might increase, or literally, the law was added so that the trespasses could be seen. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember that this is the Apostle Paul writing in the book of Romans, And in the book of Titus, he gives us the definition of grace. He tells us that the purpose of grace is to teach us to say no to ungodliness. Now, it is unmerited favor. It is undeserved on our part. 
but it does teach us to say no to ungodliness. And then chapter 6, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The implication of what I'm reading to you is that we must die just as Christ died. Now, Jesus died without any sin. But we are sinners if we have not yet died and been freed from sin. He continues, verse 7, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin or consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now I'd like today to unfold the deep meaning of this passage. I have, I confess, read this passage so many times that, in fact, the whole book of Romans is just worn out in my Bible, the the pages have almost worn through. I've struggled to understand this book. I suspect that some of you have likewise. Don't simply assume that you know what it means. Let's consider it very carefully. When we consider these passages of Scripture, dead indeed to sin but alive to God. The implication is that we can be free from sin, yea, we must be free from sin right now. How could we be told to be dead to sin, but alive to God, if it were utterly impossible, if there were no provision made for us to have such a relationship with Jesus and to sin. If these blessings could not reasonably be expected, there would be no rational grounds for the expectation that we could be set free from sin. If it were not reasonable to expect it, then to command us 
to consider ourselves to be entirely free of sin would be unreasonable. So let's consider the depth of this passage. And I'd like to share with you some thoughts today from a sermon that Charles Finney preached at Oberlin College in 18, sometime between 1845 and 1850. First, we believe that such a thing is impossible. That is, to be told that we are to consider ourselves righteous while being unrighteous. I affirm today that it is possible that through Christ we may live in the required manner that we may avoid sin, give it up and abandon it altogether and to put it away forever. Now you cannot comply with this if you are not believing that it is feasible. Now just aside from Finney, many times I have spoken with men and women who say, I do not believe it is possible to live without sin in this life. Oh, who told you that? Who taught you that? If you do not believe that it is possible for you to live without sin, you will not live without sin. But in order for you to be saved, you must be saved from sin in reality. Now, second, we must cease from all expectation of attaining this state of being without sin by our own independent and unaided efforts. We cannot begin to receive by grace until we renounce all expectation of attaining by natural works this work of grace. It is only when we are completely empty of self that we can begin to be filled with Jesus Christ. Now, a third understanding is that you must have a present willingness to be saved from sin. Are you willing today to be saved from your sin? If I can show you that the scriptures teach that we can walk free of sin, are you prepared to receive and walk free of sin? It calls for us to actually renounce all sin because it is sin. Our minds must take this position saying, I can have nothing more to do with sinning, for God hates sin. And I am to live henceforth and forever to please and to glorify him. You must say in your heart, my soul is committed with its utmost strength of purpose to pleasing God and doing his will. Now, fourth, There must be an entire committal of your case to Jesus Christ. Not only for present salvation from sin, but also for all future salvation from sin. This is an absolute essential. It must always be the vital step where we say, I will not turn aside again from Jesus Christ. Always, 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 as the devil comes at us with his angry bitterness, when he comes with his best temptations, when life becomes so utterly painful that we don't know how we can stand it, 
the devil will say, turn away from Jesus and come to me, and I'll comfort your heart. We must know this, and we must make this absolutely essential statement of purpose in our hearts and to the Lord Jesus, saying, I will not ever turn away from you again. That it is not you, Jesus, who cause me to suffer. It is not you, Jesus, who steal from me. It is not you, Jesus, who creates such painful things in my heart and my life. It is you, devil. You are to blame. That Jesus is life and comfort and security. He is the forgiveness of my sins and he is the removal of my sins. He is everything. You must make that essential and absolutely vital step. It is the key act in the great act of salvation, in the great work of salvation from sin. Salvation from sin does not come from a system of theology. Salvation from sin does not come by human effort. It comes by way of Jesus Christ. It does not come by rituals. It does not come by ritual prayers. It does not come by ritual practices. As one man said to me, they do have a vital purpose, and that is the rituals keep me harnessed in with Jesus until finally he can break through the hardness of my heart and deal with me personally. Now there is also the truth that the closing of the mind against temptation must take place by reason and by the cry of the heart to leave the darkness and enter into the life and into the light of Jesus Christ. There must be a sense of the mind that you truly expect to live a life purely devoted to God. This is the same sort of closing of the mind that takes place in a faithful marriage contract when two people are solemnly betrothed in mutual love and honest fidelity. There is no longer any thought of letting the eye wander or the heart go abroad to look at another person. The heart is fixed willingly and by faith. And this fact shuts out the power of temptation almost entirely. It makes it comparatively easy to keep the heart safely above the influence of temptation. Before the sacred vows are taken, individuals may be excused for looking around and making any observation or inquiry, but never after the solemn vow is made. After the parties have become one by vow of marriage, never to be broken, there is to be no more question as to the better choice. No further thought about changing the relationship or withdrawing the heart's affection. No wavering is admissible now. The pledge is made for everlasting faithfulness settled once and forever. Now, this illustration is very prominent in the Bible. Christians are represented as the bride of Christ, and our relationship to him is closely analogous to the bride to her husband. Look in the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. So when Christians commit their whole hearts to Jesus, resting their affections in him and trusting him for all good, their hearts are strongly closed against the devil and his temptations. When the temptation comes, we must say, Away from my heart forever. I am married to Jesus Christ. How can I look for other lovers? My mind is forever settled. My affections are fixed. They wander no more. 
I can think of yielding to sin's seductions no longer. I cannot entertain the question for a moment. I can have nothing to do with sinning. My mind is settled. The question is forever closed. I can no more entertain the temptation to small sins than to, to great sins. can no more consent to give my heart to worldly idols than to commit murder. I did not enter into the Christian faith as an experiment to see how I might like it, no more than a loyal husband and wife treat the marriage vow as an experiment. No, my whole soul has committed itself to Jesus Christ with as much expectation of being faithful forever as the most faithful husband and wife have of fulfilling their vows in all fidelity until death shall part them. Christians who make this decision do not expect to commit small sins or great sins, since they hate all sin for its own sake and for its hatefulness to Christ. Any sin, however small, is to them like murder. Thus, if the heart is ever afterwards seduced and overcome by temptation, it is altogether contrary to their expectation and their purpose. It was not part of their plan by any means, but was distinctly excluded. The temptation broke on them, perhaps unexpectedly, perhaps because of old habits or associates. But the state of mind in question means that the Christian knows where his great strength lies. He knows that his strength does not lie in in fasting or giving to charity or saying prayers or doing public or private devotions. Nothing of this sort, not even in resolutions or any self originated efforts but everything is only in Jesus Christ he no more expects spiritual life apart from Christ than a sane man would expect to fly by swinging his arms in the air deep in his soul lies the conviction that his whole strength lies in Jesus Christ alone now when a person is so enlightened that he truly understands this subject, then to expect less than this from Jesus Christ as a result of committing the whole soul to him for full salvation is virtually to reject him as a revealed Savior. It does not honor him for what he is. It does not honor the revelations he has made of himself in his word by accepting him as he is presented there. The text I've shared with you from Romans says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there is a justifiable expectation of living without sin through grace. If there were no other passages concerning this point, this passage alone would be adequate. If a Christian offers this as his only reason for hope in Christ, he offers a reason as good as he needs. But there are many passages of Scripture that teach the same thing. 1 John, the third chapter. to teach that such an expectation that we can live and are demanded of Christ to live without sin in order to be saved, to teach that such an expectation is a dangerous error, is literally to teach unbelief in Jesus. What if the apostle had added to this command, which requires us to account ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, what if he had said something like this after this passage? Yet let me warn you, nobody can rationally hope to be free from sin in this world. You must remember that to entertain such an expectation as God commands in these words is a dangerous error. 
What would be thought of this if it were be attached to Romans 6.11? And by the way, I heard the Bible answer man say just exactly that. And I've heard many other pastors say the same thing. You cannot read this passage of Scripture and deny that the passage speaks of sanctification, of being holy before God. The whole question is, will Christians continue in sin, Romans 6, 1, after they've been forgiven and accepted by their Redeemer? Paul labored to show that they may die to sin even as Christ died for sin. He also explained that they may live a new spiritual life through faith in his grace, even as Christ lives a higher, more glorious life. Now, let me share another passage of Scripture with you. It's found in Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and then verses 16 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, For what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. You notice it does not say, For you will be the temple of the living God when you die and your sin is removed. It does not say that. It says, For you are the living temple of God. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. These verses are a part of a a very remarkable passage. Note how the precept or the principle and the promises are intermingled and how the the principles admonishing us to be perfect. Holiness is found on the basis of a most glorious promise. Now, what would we think of Paul and of the Holy Spirit who spoke through Paul if he had immediately added to this passage, now take care, lest any of you should be led by these remarks to indulge the very dangerous and erroneous expectation that you can perfect holiness or cleanse yourselves from all sin, either in flesh or spirit in this world. They didn't say that, did they? It would be considered blasphemy in Scripture, and yet it is the calmest most common refrain in the Christian church today, and it's called cheap, greasy grace. So happens that the Bible never contradicts its own teaching. But what if it had? What if the Bible had solemnly asserted no mere man, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, has ever kept holy, or can ever keep holy the commandments of God, but he daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed. What if the Bible said that? Like the Westminster Confession. To teach that such an expectation that we can leave all sin to teach that the expectation that we can leave all sin is exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches. For anyone to say that this is a dangerous expectation is no gospel at all. It is another Jesus. It is not the Jesus of Scripture. It would be far better to leave men in their own unaided reading of God's Word, for then they would not be so sadly misled 
no matter how inclined they might be to misunderstanding. How can it be dangerous to expect salvation from sin? How can that be dangerous? What is dangerous is to expect that I can continue to walk in my sin and that I am still saved. There can be nothing more dangerous than that. Is it, is it dangerous to expect victory over any sin? Almost everyone would say, Jesus will give you deliverance from drug addiction. Almost anyone, any pastor will say, even of the Reformed theology will say, yes, it's possible for God to deliver you and forgive you for your murder. And it's possible then for you to never murder again. They'll go that far with gross sin. And then say that it's dangerous for me to expect that Jesus will totally deliver me. If the gospel of Jesus Christ, if Jesus does not have the power and the right to expect you to allow him in your life to remove all sin, then what is the gospel worth? What is good news that, that you're allowed to walk in your sin and enjoy the lust of the flesh and that you're going to still be saved? Is that what the good news of the gospel is? No! The good news of the gospel, according to the sixth chapter of Romans, is that you have the right to consider yourself perfect before God. That you have the right to consider yourself sinless before God. I come to this radio broadcast today and I proclaim loudly to you, my sins have been forgiven. They have been wiped away. They've been washed. I am clean before God. I am not walking in sin against my Lord. It is a glorious thing to walk clean with Jesus. It is such joy to, to wake with a pure conscience. It is such joy to know that I'm right with my Savior and my Lord and my Master. You can be right today with Jesus, but only Jesus can make you right. And you must do what he tells you to do. You must meet, you must meet his expectations. And what are they? that you would surrender and never turn away from Jesus again. That you would be wed to him. Many people indulge this expectation that they can never walk away from their sin. Far from ex expecting anything like what Paul authorized them to expect, they know they have no expectation to live without sin through grace. Others expect to always be in sin. They depend on reckoning themselves dead indeed to sin, but somewhat alive to sin all of their lives. Somewhat alive to God and to Jesus, but never really cleansed, never really healed, never really restored. Anyone who's been wounded and made sore by sin its bitter darts sinking deep into his mortal being. Anyone who has known its bitterness and felt its poison drink up his spirit will see that there is glory in the idea of being delivered from all sin. He will surely see that this deliverance is by far the greatest need of his soul and that nothing can be compared with escaping from this body of sin in Romans 6, 6. And death, look at Romans 7. There you will see that the state of man who is more than convinced he is, he is really convicted. Now, it's one thing to be convinced. To be convinced shows greater progress in the right direction. But the term convicted means the intervention of another party. 
the criminal who goes before the judge may be quite convinced of his guilt. But his being convicted is a much different step. The testimony of the jury convicts him. Some of you know what it is to see yourself as a sinner, and yet seeing this fact brings with it no sting, no rebuke. You say, all men sin. I can't help myself. God will just have to accept me the way I am. It does not cut deep into your soul. On the other hand, some of you may know what it is to see your sin piercing you through and through with daggers until you cry out with Romans seven twenty four, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? You feel a piercing sting as if your soul were filled with poison, with dark, rankling venom pouring out through the depths of your soul, the very agonies of hell. This is what is meant by being convicted. As a state of mind, it's beyond being merely convinced. The daggers and smiting of sin seem like piercing of an arrow, arrows of the Almighty, ready to consume your spirit. When you experience this, then you can understand what the good news of the gospel really is. Part of the problem we face. And I've been trying to deal with this month after month on this broadcast. Is that many of you are convinced that you are a sinner. And you are convinced that you want to go to heaven. And you are convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And you are convinced that he has enough grace to cover you. The problem is you don't believe that he has enough grace to change you and make you righteous. And you've never had to plumb that depth because you've never been convicted of your sin. You've been convinced of your sin, but you've never been convicted of your sin. And so there is no bite. You're neutral. You go to church and it's an inspirational time. But hey, can I be straight with you? I used to love to go to the Kennedy Center. I used to love to go to the operas. And in the opera, great passion is released. You laugh and you cry. but you're not convicted. And you leave the theater and you talk with others about what you experienced, what you saw, what you heard, but it doesn't change your life. You're the same person as when you walked in to see the opera. It's been wonderful entertainment, but no conviction. Conviction comes by way of the Holy Spirit as we read the Word. Conviction comes as we begin to reason through, pardon me, as we begin to reason through the reality of our sin. But if in your mind you have the expectation that you are accepted by God and loved by God, in spite of your sin, if you are convinced by the lying prophets that God has unconditional love, which is found nowhere in the scriptures, unfailing love, but not unconditional love, if you're convinced that you cannot live a righteous life and you cannot live holy before God, totally given to him without sin, if you're convinced that it's impossible to live without sin, 
then you will not ever be convicted of your sin. And you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Salvation will only come to the man who is convicted of his sin and in agony of soul departs from it and says, I will not go back there because it violates the one I love. I mean, what would you think of a woman who said to her husband, sweetheart, I love many men. I'm married to you. I I sleep with you. We have a home together. We have a child together. But I love many other men. And so while you're at work, honey, I'm going to entertain other men in our bedroom. I'm going to have affairs. What would that man say? What would he do? Would you accept a spouse that said, I love you, honey, but I love many others as well? Isn't that what you do when you say, I love you, Jesus, but I love these other gods also? I love my lust. I love my pride. I love going after the money. I love my ambition. I love being angry and bitter. I love fighting. I love all the things of the world. Would any spouse put up with a mate who acted as such? Well, yes, frankly. Let's be honest. I talked with a man just recently. I sat with him. He was telling me that he was having a miserable time in his marriage, that they were struggling with one another. I, being a pastor, a counselor, immediately said to him, Well, tell me more. What's happening? And so he went on to tell me the jealousy that exists between them. We talked a bit about it. He's not a Christian. And later I was talking with a friend of his. And this friend said to me, Did you know that, and named the man, Did you know that he and his wife are swingers? I said, What? Yes, they're swingers. They invited me to go to one of their parties. What? Yes. Suddenly now I understood all of the trouble they were having with jealousy and with fear and with anger and with expectations and on the verge of divorce because they've included many other lovers in their intimate life. If you have included many other lovers and made excuses for these lovers with Jesus, is it any wonder that you constantly feel distant from him? Is it any wonder that the blessing of God is not fully upon your life? Is it any wonder that you are hung out to dry? If you're a Christian, you are not a sinner. Can I be any more blunt than that? If you are a sinner, you are not a Christian. I hear people say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not saved. Instead, you should be saying, I'm a saint who has been saved by grace. I am a, a saint who has been washed and cleansed and purified and made holy before God. Charles Finney talks about a case where he was leading a, a revival in Reading, Pennsylvania many years ago. There was a man with a hard heart and an iron frame, a, a strong, burly man 
He'd stood up against the revival in that city as if he could shake it all off. But he'd been given a wife who was a praying woman. They gathered in prayer around him. And they began to pray that he would be convicted of his sin. Soon it was apparent that an arrow from the quiver of the Almighty had pierced between the joints of his armor and had taken hold of his innermost heart, and he was in an absolute agony. It was a dark and intensely cold night. It seemed that he was... He was so much under conviction he could not live. They sent for me to come and see him. I went. While still some distance from his house, I could hear his shouts. It put a solemn feeling upon me. His wails were so like the echoes of the pit of hell. When I reached the house, there he lay on the floor, in agony, wailing. Cold as the weather was, his sweat was falling from him like rain, his entire body intensely perspiring, and all oh, his groans... It gave me a better idea of the doom and the misery of the damned. I said, if this is only conviction, what is hell? The man could not bear to hear anything about sin. His conscience was already full of it. The awful things of God's law had already been brought to his attention so that nothing more was left to be done in that direction. I could only put Christ before him and just hold his mind to focusing on Jesus and Jesus alone. This soon brought relief. But suppose I had nothing else to say, but there's no possible help for your case. You can cry. No being in the universe can help you. Would he have believed if I had told him that, that hell has no fire? Would he have believed that? How perfectly horrible for people to oppose the idea of expecting deliverance from sin and yet talk calmly of going on in sin all the rest of their earthly days. There was an elder that rose up once in a church meeting and told the Lord in his testimony that he'd been living in sin thus far and he expected to go on sinning as long as he lived. He had sinned today, so he would undoubtedly sin tomorrow, and so on. Yet he talked as calmly about it as if it were foolish to make any ado, as well as an impossible situation to attempt any change for the better. To talk of this calmly, can you imagine? Yes, you can. Because... Many of you listening have never been under conviction. You've never left your sin. Many of you don't even believe it's possible to leave your sin unless you change. You cannot be saved. You will be shut out of the kingdom of God. For you to talk calmly of living in sin all the rest of your days is utterly wicked. You expect to be a traitor to Jesus each day of your life, to crucify him afresh each day, to put him each day to open shame, each day to dishonor his name, grieve his heart, bring sorrow and shame upon all who love Christ's cause, and yet you talk about having a good hope through grace? How can you stand it? How can you stand it? Now, it's one thing to be ignorant of the fact that you can be free of sin. None of you can claim that after today's broadcast. Is it just that you're careless about your life and about your sin? 
Are you in unbelief that Jesus can set you free? As you know, there are two very distinct views of salvation entertained by professing Christians in America. There are two distinctly different classes of believers, even often in the same church. The one class of believers sees the gospel as salvation from sin. The other class believes in salvation while in sin. I'm interested today in your being delivered from all sin. I come to you day by day on this broadcast with a labor of love to ask you to reason with me. I don't come with high emotion. I come asking you to think and reason with me in the scriptures. To understand that that I was taught a lie and you were also taught a lie. We cannot be saved by our own power. We can only be saved as a gift of grace in Jesus Christ. But the gift of grace in Jesus Christ includes leaving all of our sin. Many of you only desire to be saved from hell. You believe you can go on in your sin and Jesus' blood covers you and you'll be saved from hell. And when you die, he'll remove your sins and you'll be saved. I want to tell you today, my brother, my sister, I too do not want to go to hell, but that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is my great love for Jesus. I don't want to displease him. I don't want to disappoint him. Jesus is everything to me. Jesus is my breath. He is my life. He is my all. Secondarily, yes, he will save me from hell, but that's not what it's about. It's about the joy of serving Jesus Christ and being filled with his presence. It's about being filled with love and joy and hope. It's having victory. It's walking day by day in the fullness of the spirit of the living God. It's the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I desire for you. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find there that the National Prayer Chapel worships at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our services begin at 12 noon. Go to our webpage for directions. Now let me pray for you quickly. Almighty God, would you bring the truth of conviction to every heart listening today? Would you pierce each heart with the arrow that will turn them from their sin and unto righteousness by your precious blood. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.